right, let's take out our Bibles and find Romans chapter 8 once again. Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses, specifically verses 2 through 4 this week. We began unpacking this chapter a few weeks ago. We had a couple general messages, and now, beginning last week, we looked at verse 1, and we're ready to go through verse 4 this morning, verses 2 through 4. Let's go ahead now and read through those first four verses. And then we'll pause, we'll pray and ask God's blessing on this passage, and then we'll begin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pause now and ask God's blessing on these verses. Father, we confess as a people that these are your inspired, inerrant, infallible words, and that when the Bible is read, you are speaking to us. And so I pray now as we are looking at this passage and I am doing what you desire to be done in churches, in worship services, and that is preach and teach and exhort from the passage, I'm asking that you would gift me by your Spirit for the glory of your name and the good of your people. Guide me because I am in and of myself, incapable of bearing fruit. But I pray that fruit would be born from this message because of my connection to you, Lord Jesus, and because of your Spirit within me. So help everybody now to hear and to understand. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Last week, you remember that when we looked at verse 1, we brought out two kind of points under one point in that. And we said that verse 1 is a reminder and a relief. It's a reminder, first of all, that for those who are in Christ Jesus, by faith, there is no possibility of condemnation. And we said it was a reminder because in part of what we just read a few minutes ago from Romans chapter 5, that those who are justified by the blood of Jesus how then could they go on to ever be condemned, you see? He's saying the same thing. He said back in chapter 5 and verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in hope of the glory of God. So those who are in Christ are justified people 
which is the opposite of condemnation. So if you're a justified person, you cannot be condemned. That's Paul's reasoning. So he brings it out in chapter 5. He brings it out in chapter 8, reminding the people of God of this wonderful status of justification and peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. He's just reminding them. And then we said, wow, it's a relief, isn't it? Because after we got done studying chapter 7 and we saw that we still have within us indwelling sin, we still fail. Even this week we have failed to glorify God as we should in word, thought, and deed. And we cannot perfectly, completely, at all times, fulfill God's righteous law. And so we are so grateful for Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. And the fact that because we are justified people, we are forgiven of all our sins and we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ in our account. So there is therefore no now, no condemnation to us. So we can celebrate that. I hope that message comes out, not just in my preaching every week, but in our services as we rehearse the gospel strategically and purposely from the revelation of God's glory and His righteous standard and our failure but then immediately getting to the cross and what we call the absolution and the reminder of the gospel that you are forgiven. And then every week as we conclude our service, every week with the Lord's table, what a reminder on the people of God as they go out with the benediction. I'm a forgiven man. I'm a forgiven woman through what Christ has done for me on the cross. I hope every week you're catching on to that. It's on purpose that we rehearse the gospel every week. God is very concerned that His people know that they are justified people, and for them there will be no condemnation. But now going into verses 2 through 4, we'll be in verse 2 the first time we're introduced in this chapter anyway, not in the whole letter of Romans, but in this chapter, to what we said was the focus of this chapter, the person in the Godhead, that is, whose work is zeroed in on now. And it is not the Son, though the Son is still here. It is the Spirit of God now that we're going to talk about. It is the Spirit of God that is mentioned 20 times in this chapter. Uh, 14 of those times, if my counting is correct, uh, in the first 17 verses. This is about the Spirit of God in us and the daily reminder the people of God need to have of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But it is interesting to note that the focus of the work of the Spirit, and the Spirit does a number of things in us and for us, but the focus of the Spirit and His work in you in chapter 8 is on holiness in your life, personal holiness. Or what Paul referred to back in chapter 6 as sanctification. Remember, just another word for the word holiness. He's not focused here where oftentimes uh, Christians focus on the work of the Spirit, and that is in the Spirit's work of gifting. We think much about the Spirit's work in gifting, and that's important. The Spirit imparts 
spiritual gifts to the people of God. Giftings that they would only have by the Spirit, not necessarily natural talents, though the Spirit can empower a person's natural talents for the glory of God and the good of His people. But spiritual giftings that are given to Christians in order to uh, minister to primarily fellow Christians and for building up the body. And those are important, but that's not what he's talking about here. And I would argue that that gifting purpose of the Spirit is not the daily priority for the Christian in focusing on that element. It is the production of new Christ life within us, enabling us and empowering us to live like Jesus Christ every day in holiness and righteousness. That is where the Christian's priority and the main focus of what we need to think about when we think about the Spirit in us, enabling us to overcome our indwelling sin. You know, the Spirit is referred to with a number of names and, and such in Scripture. But one of the ones we know Him by so frequently is the Holy Spirit. Have you ever caught on to that? We think about the three persons of the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, Paul introduced this entire letter referring to Him in verse 4 of chapter 1 as the Spirit of holiness. He is the one who empowers the people of God to be holy as Christ was holy. And our priority every day, friends, is the pursuit of Spirit-empowered holiness in our lives. The New England Puritans believed that every every Christian had two responsibilities every day, primary responsibilities that they were to conduct throughout their day. They called them mortification and vivification. Mortification meaning they are to, by the Spirit's power, put to death those sinful desires and not sin. And vivification means bringing to life the good things by the Spirit that we are supposed to live out. That is holiness. That is our daily responsibility as we wake up each day. Are we taking that responsibility seriously? If Paul says that the Spirit leads the people of God, we're led by the people of God. He is leading us in holiness. He is leading us as we follow Jesus Christ in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. He is the Spirit of holiness. You know what happens in a church that focuses exclusively on the gifts of the Spirit and makes that their priority and not the holiness the Spirit produces. You know what happens? You get a Corinthian church. You ever read through 1 Corinthians? Paul was convinced that most of them, or at least it seems in his writing, were saved people. And he commended them that they were spiritually gifted. Matter of fact, I think he used the expression excel in gifts in every way, and he was very grateful of that. 
But these were a people who didn't have much personal holiness. And even their focus on the giftings became the main point. The making them the center of attention. Look at me, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm speaking in tongues, I'm prophesying this, and I, all these kinds of things. They were gifted spiritually, but they were not holy. They were a people divided. At animosity with one another, choosing sides of their spiritual leaders. They were people who were even taking one another to court when they were wronged. These were people who were allowing or participating in sexual immorality. And even in the place when they would gather together for the Lord's Supper, they would despise the poor, wouldn't even wait for them, wouldn't worry if they had anything to share in what they called their love feasts. And during those and during the part of the love feast that they would observe the Lord's Supper, they were actually, some of them, getting drunk. That's what happens when the focus becomes gifting of the Spirit and not the holiness in which the Spirit is leading them into. And make no mistake, friends, the Spirit will gift people for the benefit of the rest of the body even if the gifted person on the inside is full of unrighteousness and sin. This is why you will see, sometimes out in the world generally, very big names in ministry. And man, were they gifted. Gifted people. They could teach, they could do all these things. Used of God in people's lives, like people coming to faith in Jesus under their ministry, and all of a sudden it would emerge behind the scenes for years. They lived unholy lives. Why would God do that? Because He's gifting the person for the benefit of His people, to grow His people, and to edify His people. But that does not mean the gifted person is being led by the Spirit in their private life and pursuing holiness, right? You know, the primary Old Testament example of that was Samson. There was a gifted man by the Spirit to help the people of God, but he was a sinful mess, specifically had a problem with the ladies, and it ended in his demise. Friends, our priority above and beyond our giftings in our ministries is a daily pursuit of holiness by the Holy Spirit of God. That's your priority every day. This is a chapter about that. Every day we must get up reminded of the Spirit's presence and His power that enables us now to walk in holiness. It is our priority. So in verse 1, we saw the reminder and the relief. Now remember, in verses 2 and 3, we're going to look at the reasons for that reminder and relief. He gives those in verses 2 and 3, and we know that because he begins verse 2 and verse 3 with the word for. It could also be because. He's reasoning this out here. There's therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ for or because this reason, and then verse 3, for and because this reason. So let's look at those individually. Look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free 
in Christ Jesus from the law and sin and death. Now, that's interesting to put this one first, that he chose to do that. Verse 3 mentions the cross, and it seems to us like those should almost be reversed, where you begin with Christ and the cross and then move to the Spirit, because that's the order of time which it happened, but that's not the way the Holy Spirit decided to reveal that to us. He begins with this reason. There is no condemnation to you now, those who are in Christ, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of death. Uh, sin and death. And you see there that the word spirit, of course, is capitalized because we know and believe he's referring here to the Holy Spirit that we've been talking about. It's first mentioned in this chapter, and it goes throughout the rest of the chapter now. Notice in that verse, verse 2, that your freedom from sin's condemnation is still rooted in Jesus. It's not apart from Jesus. For he says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. Very important phrase, just like in verse 1. There's no condemnation there. For to you in Christ Jesus, because everything we have, including the Spirit in us, flows to us from Christ Jesus in everything He did for us. That's why He is specifically the object of our faith. We understand the Spirit's working in us every day, but we are told to run this race with endurance looking to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. So our faith uniquely rests in Him, but from Him, and what He has done for us flows all of these things like the Holy Spirit within us, you see. It's rooted, it's anchored in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's good news because that means that the Spirit's work in you isn't rooted and anchored in you or even how you respond to the Spirit every day because believe it or not, we still do grieve the Holy Spirit. But aren't you glad that the Spirit's power and presence in you is anchored towards or anchored in the person and work of Jesus Christ because there is one for you who never grieved the Holy Spirit of God. He perfectly walked according to the Spirit of God. Very important to believe. That's how we stay gospel-centered in these things. It's the good news of Christ and how we have this relationship with the triune God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But now, what is the law? of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus? And furthermore, what is the law of sin and death? Because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus is what has set us free from the law and sin and death. So let's just analyze that for just a couple of minutes, okay? I want to talk about the second one first, the law of sin and death. This will be easy because we spend a lot of time in this. Look back at chapter 7 and begin in verse... 21. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, that's what God has said is right and wrong, that's the Ten Commandments, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to, listen, the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am, you see. 
When Paul is using the word here, I think in chapter 8, in verse 2 of the law of sin and death, he's not referring to the Mosaic law. He's not referring to the commands of God. I do not believe. I think he's referring to that principle within Christians, or within all people, of sin and desires for sin that lead to death and eternal death, because the wages of sin is death. Now, think of this for a moment. If a person lives entirely dominated by that principle of sin within them, and they just walk according to sin in their lives, or whatever they want to do in their lives, and they don't have the Spirit of God in them, will that person be condemned? Yes. They're just going to walk according to the passions of the flesh and the desires of the body and the mind like everyone else. That was all of us, by the way. That was, that's everyone in this room apart from Jesus Christ. But what Paul is saying in verse 2 is this. There's no condemnation to you because the spirit of life is in you now. And He has freed you. You're under this new principle, this new law, this new power source that has actually set you free from the law of sin and death. You're no longer enslaved to the sin that was leading you right into the gates of hell. You have now been released by the Spirit of God who has breathed this life into you now. You have new life. Remember all the time Jesus said, you come to me and you'll receive eternal life. What he means by that in part is that when you believe in him, the Spirit will be given to you and breathe into you this new eternal life that begins now and goes on forever and ever. And this new life is new power to no longer live as slaves to sin, which was leading you into sin and death, you see. When a person is trusts in Christ, simultaneously what is happening is that they receive this life-giving Spirit, and the Spirit sets us free from the law of sin and death, and the Spirit imparts spiritual life and power, freeing us from that law of sin and death. You have now the spirit of life in you, conquering for you this law of sin and death. I want you to look back at chapter 6 for a moment. Do you remember studying through this? And if you look at verse 11, he says, You must, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. In Christ Jesus. Now Paul is telling us, right, back in chapter 8, you have the spirit of life. You need to know that. And you need to apply that in your mind, in your brain. You need to apply that to you. 
You're dead to sin now. I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus by the Spirit of life in me. Therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members, that is the members of your body, to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And what Paul is doing in chapter 8, he's expounding on that. What it is to be in Christ and under grace means you have the spirit of life in you. I said earlier when I read that passage in Ezekiel 37 that when you think about what God has done for you, you must think in terms of being brought from death to life. It's that radical. There is no more radical of a picture than that, of the change that comes within a person by God's grace in Christ Jesus through the Spirit of God. Radically changed people going from dry bones scattered throughout a desert to all of a sudden a living army standing on their feet, you see, ready to live for God and serve God by what? The Spirit that He breathed within them. That's happened to you. That's happened to you if you are in Christ. We need to know this so that when we feel those passions of the flesh, we can in that moment say, no, I'm dead to that, and I have the spirit of life in me, and I no longer have to obey those passions, and I'm going to walk now according to the spirit. Friends, I would venture to guess that if we weren't told that we had the spirit in us and we felt those sinful passions that are so overwhelming at times, we would begin to think that there is no hope for us that perhaps the law of sin and death that still resides within us was going to lead us right to hell and we could not be saved. That's why Paul says, no, 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 no. There's no condemnation to you because of what Christ has done for you and because of what the Spirit's doing in you. You have new life now, so walk in that newness of life. This is what he's promoting. This is what he's preaching. And notice back in chapter 8 now that the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. By saying that the Spirit frees us from sin power, he's saying that we are free in the gospel now not to sin. The reason, and to pursue holiness, the reason I have to bring that up is because there can be confusion in Christian circles around this concept of being free now. I'm free. I'm free in the gospel. I'm free in Christ, which I take to mean I can do whatever I want. So I can live in sin. No, the whole freedom that we're brought is the freedom to live for God now. It's the freedom to not sin, which should be the most joyful thing we want. If we're always just walking around thinking, boy, I wish I could just sin like I want to sin. This is really a drag. This is a bummer that I can't do what I want. That's not the way a Christian should think. We have our eyes on what we know to be good and right and true, what God has laid forth in His Word, and we say, yes, I want that. Well, good news, Christian. The spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from what drags you away from that, and that is the law of sin and death. You are empowered now by the Spirit. He empowers you to live for God. And now in verse 3, the second reason here. There's no condemnation for us because God has done what the law 
weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin He condemns sin in the flesh. Let me just break this up phrase by phrase. First of all, there's no condemnation for God has done. Let's just park there. There's no condemnation to you. You're a saved person because of what God has done. Whenever we talk about the gospel, and when you're talking about the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of salvation for sinners, it's always talking about what God has done. Have you thought about that? It's never talking about what you do. Salvation and the discussion of the true gospel is always what God has done. That's what would separate a truly gospel people or ministry from a legalistic one. See, in a legalistic one, a law-based community of people, they're always going to talk about what you do, what you must do, what you must not do. That's the main thrust. That's the main emphasis of a legalistic ministry. But a gospel one is always like what God has done. That's why there's no condemnation. If I were to ask you, why are you... Why are you going to heaven? Why are you not going to be condemned? If you begin with I, I this or I that or I did this or I did that or I can remember that, right? you're already, you're already gone awry. It's always what God has done for you in and through Christ Jesus, you see. God has done. And in this case, in verse 3, He has done what the law, now we're talking about, right, the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, other commands of God in Scripture. We're talking about the law. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Interesting, isn't it, statement here. The law could not do something. The law can do some things. We know it's God's Word. We love it. We uphold it. It can tell us what's right and wrong. It can reveal sin in our lives. The law can demand righteousness, but friends, the law can't produce it in a person, not in a sinner. It's weakened by the flesh. Remember, that's just, if you make notes in your Bible, you could just make a note over weakened by the flesh and just put Romans 7, especially the first 13 verses. Romans 7, 1 through 13, we spent weeks going through that. No problem with the law. The law is good and righteous and holy. We love it. We uphold it. But it doesn't produce holiness in sinners. It only exasperates sin and sinfulness. That's the problem. But thanks be to God that He has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son. Now, in this context, I want you to think about this. That is the eternal Son of God, second person of what we call the Godhead, the Holy Trinity, the one by whom for all things were created. Just so we know we're talking about the same Son here. 
This is the eternal God we are talking about here, equal to the Father and the Spirit in the one divine essence of this eternal triune God. He sent His Son, listen to this now, how careful He is to word this, in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, what is He saying? Well, He's saying on the one hand, Jesus, the Son of God became human, assumed humanity unto Himself. So that we say truly, we confess it truly, that Jesus is truly God and truly man. He was born of a woman. He was born as an infant and grew up in every way as a human being, just like us. If you saw Jesus, He would be in the same likeness as you. You, you wouldn't notice Him. As a matter of fact, what we have in Isaiah's idea is that you wouldn't have, there was nothing about Him that would have stood out, not super human-looking, not super buff, not super good-looking, nothing, just, just a very ordinary man in the likeness of sinful flesh. The only distinction, and being around him long enough, you would have caught on to this pretty quickly as a sinner. The only distinction was he had no sin. None. He was sinless. Yeah, I love... When you read through the Gospels, all four of them, and you get to the point where Jesus is at the end and He's going through those trials through the night, and what do the Jews have to bring before the council and before others about Jesus to bear testimony? You get, what kind of witnesses did they bring? True witnesses? False witnesses. They had to bring people that would lie about the things Jesus did or said in order to condemn Him as a sinner, you see. But the Scriptures go out of the way to show that there was no sin in Him, there was no fault in Him, right down to Pilate saying, I find no fault in this man. He has done nothing worthy of death, you see. Those aren't there just for neat little details. Those are there to show you this was one who was in the likeness of sinful flesh, but only in the likeness. One who was like us in every way except sin, the author of Hebrews says. This was the sinless one. But then it says for sin, not his, right? And for sin, but not his, he condemns sin, ours, in the flesh. That's the cross. So as, as Jesus is on that cross, and he is suffering, and he is bearing the wrath of God, he is bearing condemnation for sin, but not his own. He's bearing the condemnation of the sins of his people. So friends, it only stands to reason that if your sin was condemned in the flesh of Jesus Christ, there would be therefore now no longer any condemnation for you. Not even a possibility of it. 
When you view the cross like that, when you understand he had your sins that he was bearing in his body on that tree, the condemnation that was due to you, when you understand that, at the end when Jesus says, it is finished, it can take on a whole new, inspiring, wonderful meaning to you. That is, every one of your sins have been condemned in the sinless one. And so, of course, therefore, there is now for those in Christ Jesus no condemnation to them at all. Which leads us then to verse 4, and that is the result. Let me just say this, go through this quickly. What is the result of all of this? What is the result of Christ's atoning work? What is the result of the Spirit's sanctifying work? What is the result of the gospel and what God has done for us? In order, verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. In other words, what I believe Paul to be teaching here is this. That those who are in Christ Jesus and those who have received the Spirit and who have been set free from the law of sin and death, that the Spirit now in us enables us, friends, to fulfill in our daily lives the righteous requirement of the law. Now listen, not perfectly, but we don't need that, do we? Because Jesus already did that for us. But he does enable us to walk in this way. And what he'll talk about in a handful of chapters later, he enables us to walk in the law of love. As you know, he'll talk about in that chapter that you could summarize the whole law. You're worried about the law, Christian, what you're supposed to do with it? Paul says we can summarize it all with one word, that is love. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two, all the commandments hang. This is what the Spirit enables us to do. And isn't it interesting? In Galatians 5, remember we did that series a number of months ago? He says the fruit of the Spirit, and what's the first one? Is what? Love. That as we learn to walk by the Spirit, we learn to walk in love. Love for God, love for our neighbors. Friends, do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? Well, blessed are you. Because by the Spirit of life in you and through the work of Jesus Christ, you now can walk righteously. Not perfectly, but progressively. You can fulfill God's law within you now. Sometimes people will quote, I should have looked it up. My mind drew a blank. But the, the uh, verse that talks about all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Friends, can I say that is only applicable to the things done in our sinful flesh or previous to Jesus Christ because your good works now are acceptable in the sight of God. They're righteous. What sometimes Christian people don't understand is this is, part of the, this is part of the plan of salvation that we live righteously and in us, like from our hearts. 
This is what all of the prophets were prophesying about. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, I'm going to put my spirit in you, cause you to walk in my ways. I'm going to write my law now upon your hearts so that in you the righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled, not perfectly, but progressively and powerfully by the spirit and enable you now to do good works. Did you ever notice in Ephesians chapter 2? He makes the, the emphasis, you were dead in sin, but now you're alive. You're saved by grace, not by works, but you are saved by grace for good works, you see? That when God looks at your works in Christ and in your labors of love and in your worship and adoration of Him and in your genuine pursuit of loving one another, He says, those are good works. They please Him, you see. The righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled in us now who have the Holy Spirit and who have the new heart with the law of God written upon it. That's what makes the gospel so wonderful. There's a saying, I'll end with this, that is attributed to John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, but uh, they don't know for sure if it was him. But he said this, he says, Run, John, run, the law demands. Run, John, run, do this, John. Be righteous, do this, do this. But gives me neither feet nor hands. Much better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and it gives me wings. Friends, that's a spirit of life in Christ Jesus that is in you, that has set you free from the law of sin and death, that enables you to bear righteous fruit for God by His power. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the completeness of the gospel, for doing everything for us required for our salvation. We praise you. Now may we live lives of flying in holiness by the wings you provide. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.